You've been following this river for miles and walking for hours. You can't hear the cars passing by in the highway anymore. The sun has started to set, and the suffocating Georgia afternoon has given way to a gusty chill. There's no more path to follow. A fiery, almost supernatural curiosity has taken over you. You needed to find where this river leads to. Through the thick trees, you make out the decaying outline of an old mansion in the distance, exactly where the river mouth should be. Rain clouds threaten the sky, and low fog starts to roll in. You have to get there. You don't understand how or why, but there is no other thought in your mind other than to reach that castle no matter how dangerous it seems. What was that? It was definitely a cry, a muffled echo, the pained scream of a woman. It's calling for your help. It seems to be coming from the castle. Maybe your mind is playing tricks on you. You've gone without food for the entire day. You've been walking nonstop for hours. You feel as if you have no control over your body anymore. As if some force had taken over it, and its only purpose was to follow the scream. Another scream. This one is louder, in more pain. The echoes mixed with the bubbling of the creek. The wind blows harder. A third scream. Children. Restless children for consolation the splashing of the water and the gusts of the wind and the deafening screams are all you can hear. And the overbearing beating of your own heart. You see a bridge in the distance. It seems like the only way to get to the castle. Finally, a way out. Standing on its ledge is a figure wearing a blue windbreaker waiting for you. As you foolishly let a sense of relief wash over you, you take a wrong step. The wind pushes you down. Or maybe something or someone else does. You fall into the raging waters of the river. As you sink down, being dragged away by some unexplainable force, you hear the screams again as they slowly turn into some inhuman diabolical laughter. Then, darkness. Welcome to Haunted Places. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the Devil's Kitchen. To this day, it's haunted. If you can't get enough haunted places, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us on your favorite podcast directory, as well as on Facebook and Instagram, at Parcast, and on Twitter, at Parcast Network, or on our website, Parcast.com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review. 
wherever you're listening. In 1882, a Catholic priest named Father Francis Janicek and 200 Hungarian winemaking families received an offer to develop several thousand acres of vineyards just outside of Talapusa, Georgia. They accepted the offer, not knowing that one of the houses they built would soon become a local legend. That 6,000 square foot house, now known as Keys Castle, boasted 13 rooms and a large domed cupola extending well beyond the second floor. But it is the area behind the house where a creek stretches into an oak-covered canyon that brought terror upon citizens of Talapusa. It's a place where many go and few return. A place where you can hear the screams of lost souls and the whispers of desperation. A place known as the Devil's Kitchen. When Georgia's statewide prohibition on alcohol went into effect in 1908, it put Dave out of business. His local liquor shop was suddenly worthless. He tried to sell the remainder of his wares, but the pathetic do-gooders of Tallapoosa had no interest. So he drank away his stock and his sorrows. One particularly drunken evening, he wandered to the outskirts of town stumbling through the patches of oak until he came upon a pristine white mansion. A man sat on the porch, a cigarette dangling between his lips and a cold sneer on his face. The man asked Dave for a swig from the whiskey bottle Dave held in his right hand. Dave, relieved to find at least one person with a shred of sense in town, happily obliged. The two men drank until the bottle was gone. Then the man said something peculiar. He told Dave he could make him rich. The richest man in Tallapoosa. Dave's eyes were blurred and the man's voice sounded distant and echoed, as though he were speaking to a great authority. The man was saying this land was special. It required something. Souls, he thought the man said. Every ten years, a soul. Dave swayed and tried to shake it off, but the man's voice was hypnotic. Riches and riches and riches. All it takes is a little sacrifice. Dave felt he had no choice. He agreed and the two men shook hands. When Dave awoke, he felt fresh and alert. Nothing like the hangover he expected. He was in the woods near what he thought was Walker Creek. A red symbol was seared into the palm of his right hand. He sat up, leaves falling from his hair, and scratched his head, trying to remember the intoxicated evening. And then he smelled something glorious. It was coming from the creek. Dave knew the smell of liquor, but this was something sweeter. He walked to the creek's edge and saw the small, discolored portion. He leaned over and cupped his hands to drink. The taste was transcendent, an ambrosia, a nectar of the gods. He drank and drank and shouted and hollered and danced. 
This drink would truly make him rich. Dave marked the spot in the creek and quickly began bottling this wonderful drink. Thus, the creek behind the mansion started producing the rarest moonshine in the area. It was nicknamed the Devil's Water. The place where it was produced? The Devil's Kitchen. For the next decade, Dave grew to be the most successful bootlegger in the state area. People from all over the country came in hordes to try the infamous Devil's Water. His fortune grew three times. His mansion was known for having the largest, most decadent parties at the time. But then the tenth year came around, and the man who made the deal with Dave came to his house in the night. He wore the same clothes. His hair was styled in the same way. It even looked like he smoked the same cigarette. He told Dave it was time, that he would expect a soul on the morrow. Dave knew the man was not to be trifled with, and he planned his escape from the devil's kitchen. It was the middle of the night. He dressed himself in his old rag clothes, the ones he had with him before he earned his fortune, hoping that the man would not recognize him. He filled his pocket with gold coins, enough to get him by in his escape. He followed the creek into the canyon, past the spot where the creek produced moonshine. The wind was growing stronger. Rain clouds appeared in the sky, and fog had started to roll in. He tried to stay focused and kept walking. He walked through the oak trees, sure he could find his way out. The trees cast long and treacherous shadows in the unstable weather. The fog grew thicker and thicker until it seemed to swallow the forest whole. He no longer knew which direction he was walking, but he pushed forward, determined. His bones started to ache. His breath became short. He felt on the verge of collapse. And then, a light. He could see the fog would end soon. He ran toward the light. The silhouette of a house emerged. If he had the energy, he would have shouted with joy. He was saved. But when Dave reached the clearing, his mouth dropped in horror. The house before him was his own, white and pristine, as though freshly painted. Dave understood then that he was the first soul. He had claimed himself for the man who gave him everything. In the early 1900s, the prohibition in Georgia had halted production of wine outside Tallapoosa entirely. It left the area open as a prime spot to illegally produce moonshine. This was how the area earned the name Devil's Kitchen, a name which, rumor has it, also comes from a curse placed on the area, a curse that continues to seek out lost souls to this day. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, let's continue the story. Back in 1962, 
The population of Tallapoosa was around a couple of thousands. A small rural town where everyone knew everyone's business. A woman named Mary Moore Newman was well known around the town. She was stunningly beautiful and had a profound intellect. Many townspeople wondered if she was too smart for her own good. Perhaps that's why she hasn't found a man yet, they whispered. Women in particular gossiped and spread tales. She flirted with their husbands, they said. She was a disaster waiting to happen. Mary ignored these rumors. It was the husbands that flocked to her. She could not help if they watched her when she walked away. But then, Mary met Elvis. Or he said his name was Elvis. There was something about him she did not trust. Something she could not quite put a finger on. Elvis never talked about his past. Never mentioned where he came from. He showed up in town as though out of thin air. It was clear he had money, but little else was known. <laughs> but what Elvis did speak about stole Mary's heart. He quoted Rimbaud and Baudelaire. He sang the praises of Dr. Martin Luther King and condemned the Vietnam War. He was insightful and sensitive, but decisive, poignant, and thorough. The first time they met, Elvis told Mary he was taking her on a date. She coughed and sputtered and agreed. And they fell into a fast and passionate love. The town, of course, let their disapproval be heard. He's probably married, they said. He's running from something. But Mary ignored them. Even when signs told her things were going wrong, she ignored them. Elvis quickly became controlling. He lambasted her for speaking with other men and flew into a rage if she was ever late. Then, one day, Mary went over to Elvis's house. He was sitting in the dark, his head buried in his hands. When he heard her enter, he looked up. His eyes were bloodshot and filled with tears. He started to speak aloud, almost as though he was chanting, It's you. It must be you. Mary approached cautiously. She stroked his head and whispered to him softly, calming him down. She led him to his bed and sat over him, holding his hand until he went to sleep. The next day, Mary returned home from buying groceries. Tallapoosa was a trustworthy town. Maybe that's why she didn't notice her unlocked door. Maybe with an armful of groceries, she was relieved she did not have to fetch her keys. Mary knew something was wrong as soon as she entered the house. The shadows were pitch black, and they stretched and danced in an unnatural way, as though the whole room was under a peculiar fog. Sitting in her living room was a man. He was sharply dressed, but his clothing was peculiar, as though from another time. His slick black hair looked perfectly aligned, and a cigarette hung loosely from his lips. Mary dropped the groceries in fright, but before she could do or see anything, something hit her in the back of the head. When Mary awoke, she was in the trunk of a car. 
She fought wildly, but to no avail. Her arms and legs were bound. All she could do was flail against her helpless fate. When the men opened the trunk, at first she could only see their silhouettes against the bright of the day. She knew one was the man from her room. His two white teeth displayed a snarling grin. And the other, he looked so familiar. She tried to focus. It was Elvis. But he looked different. He looked deranged and resigned. She tried to speak, tried to plead for him to stop. But it was useless against her gagged mouth. The two men pulled her out of the trunk. She saw a frightful and large white house with a great castle-like spire jutting out of one of its corners. They took her beyond the house, toward the creek that ran behind it. All Mary could see was the blurry images of branches above her and feel the gusts of cold air on her skin. She was dragged for what felt like hours. Soon it was dark and the trees were thicker. The water was rising. The wind was blowing. She was able to work the gag from her mouth, but her screams only echoed against the canyon walls. They dropped her by the creek. Mary watched the strange man nod to Elvis and placed a hand on his shoulder. This seemed to provide Elvis with a vicious strength. Elvis approached Mary and wrapped his hands around her throat. She tried to scream against the crushing blow. It erupted from her in a terrible, trembling way. In 1962, Mary Newman was strangled by two men behind Keyes Castle in the area known as Devil's Kitchen. Townsfolk knew little of the incident, except that it had to do with an affair gone wrong. People who explored and inspected Devil's Kitchen claimed that besides the demonic laughter that would appear alongside the wind and fog, they could hear the voice of a woman struggling and screaming for help by the river. After Mary Moore Newman's disappearance and subsequent murder at Devil's Kitchen in the 1960s, Devil's Kitchen earned a reputation for being a haunted place. If you went there, you could hear the echoes of her last breath. The news spread like wildfire. These stories kept most people away from the remote creek, but some were enticed by it. Teenagers were known to hang around Devil's Kitchen at night, trying to test the theories that you could still hear Mary's pleas by the river, waiting to witness the ghost story themselves. It was about a decade after Mary's death, in the midst of the 1970s, Adam McKinney had just moved into Tallapoosa with his parents. Adam had heard that Tallapoosa, being the small town that it was, had a type of rite of passage for newcomers. He figured this was the normal type of high school hazing. Drinking a gallon of milk, wrestling, shotgunning beers, what you'd expect from any rural high school. So when he snuck out of his parents' house on Friday night, he did not balk when Dominic and Derek, 
told him tonight was the night. The twins seemed excited, and they passed around the bottle of whiskey Adam had ripped off his dad. They drove with the windows down and the music blaring. That is, until a raindrop fell. And then another. They rolled up the windows. The twins broke out into joyous laughter. This will be the best initiation yet, they assured Adam. He started to feel uneasy as they took the highway, and later drove on to Old Ridgeway Road out of town. He started to pull deeply from the whiskey bottle. Adam pleaded that the rivers might flood and they should turn around. The twins laughed it off. He wasn't getting off that easy. He had heard the ghost stories about Devil's Kitchen. He knew that's where they were taking him. What he didn't know was that they were heading there on a very important 10-year anniversary. He tried to act confident, but something made him uneasy. Perhaps it was the booze getting to his head. He tried to focus on the raindrops on the window. I guess I'll go through with it, he thought, and steeled himself against the things to come. Better to make a good impression off the bat. The more they drove, the harder it rained. The potholes on the road were filling up like tiny swimming pools. The twins tossed a blue windbreaker into the back seat. Can't do initiation from inside, they told him. Reluctantly, he pulled it over his head. When they got to the Walker Creek, they told him to get out and handed him a flag. Walk out behind the mansion and plant this flag, they said. We'll wait in the car and supervise. Adam took a swig for the road, steeled himself, and got out to walk along the creek. Darren and Dominic started the car again and raced away. He should have known. He shrugged his shoulders and watched as the silhouette of the car drove off, as they disappeared into the fog. Their laughter was still echoing. Might as well get it over with, he thought, and started to trudge along the creek. The rain was so thick he could hardly see in front of him, but infused with liquid courage, he pushed forward. The creek started to rise slowly. He lost track of time, unsure if he'd been walking for minutes or hours. Surely he should have seen the mansion by now. But then there was a... a sound. A hypnotic melody, unlike anything he had ever heard before. It creeped into his head, drawing him further into the canyon. He followed the music, trying his best to stay near the creek. It was his only directional bearing. He couldn't see anything. The wind and rain were so strong. Suddenly, he felt a cold hand on his shoulder. He whipped around, but nothing was there. The hand, whatever it was, invigorated him. It gave him a strange and determined strength. His limbs were hurting. His body was exhausted. But something inside him kept moving. A desire a call, 
a need to keep following this noise. A hypnotic siren call. But as it grew louder, the melody slowly morphed into something much more terrifying. A scream. A pained scream of a woman. At first he thought he was imagining it, but it came back. So clear, so loud, echoing over the rain and the wind. There was no way to mistake it. Then the rain suddenly stopped, almost as quickly as the storm began. In the clearing, Adam saw that he stood not next to the now roaring waters, but in the middle of them, on a bridge. It barely hovered above the angry stream. Then he heard it again, the infernal scream of that woman, primal, the type that only someone fighting their last fight could muster to give out. He knew she was in the creek. She had fallen in as the waters rose and now was struggling against the terrible current. Adam did not hesitate. He shed his windbreaker and dove in after her. He was shoved down by the current, gasping for air. But it was all rain and wind and breathlessness. He was dragged away into the depths. He screamed, but his lungs filled up with water. His last thought was that the water tasted funny, dirty, slightly alcoholic, like moonshine, like devil's water. The last thing he heard was laughter. Not from Darren and Dominic, a much deeper one, a demonic laughter that rang through his ears as he sunk into darkness. The following day, Darren and Dominic returned, looking for Adam. The storm had lasted all night, and though they looked for hours, it was nearly impossible to see amongst the thick rain. Darren swore he could hear Adam screaming for them. They searched and searched, but all they could hear were faint echoes coming from nowhere. Dominic thought he saw the blue windbreaker Adam was wearing by the bridge, but as they walked closer, they found nothing. They assumed it was a trick of the light. The twins left, hoping Adam would find his way back on his own. He never did. They never found his body. People stopped frequenting Devil's Kitchen after this second incident. The few who were brave enough to wander through its forests and follow its river started to claim that you could now hear not only the sounds of a woman being strangled, but also the pleas of a young man. A boy who had been abandoned by his friends and died trying to get away. Both screams echoed in desperation, both destined to be forgotten in that deadly river. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. And now, back to haunted places. After the disappearances of Mary Moore Newman and Adam McKinney, people started to believe that Devil's Kitchen wasn't just a place of urban legend, but one of legitimate danger. 
It was no longer somewhere where visitors would go to try to satisfy their morbid curiosity. It was a place that people would actively avoid if they wanted to stay alive. Only the lost or uninitiated would wander past Old Ridgeway Road, and they would all swear on the faint echoes of the screams that sounded through the canyon. A young woman and a young man. Soon, more voices would be added to the cacophony of screams. In the mid-1980s, about a decade after the disappearance and death of Adam McKinney, a strange set of weather patterns fell on Georgia. Truly unpredictable. Wild changes in the wind and the precipitation. That summer received the largest amount of rain in recorded years. It was not unusual for the many rivers that run through the state to overflow from their boundaries. Roads and highways were constantly under repair or closed down. Patty Gonzalez was driving through Georgia with her two young boys, a pair of energetic, eager toddlers that had always been a bigger handful than she expected. Something had changed in Patty after she had given birth to the twins. She found herself with no energy to accomplish even basic tasks. She would not leave bed unless she absolutely had to, and felt no emotional bond to her babies. Patty had always struggled with depression and mental illness, and her two children seemed to have made it worse. They were now about to turn five, and every moment with them had been trying and difficult. One night, induced by a combination of medication, alcohol, and severe stress, Patty decided to drive across the country, from California to her parents' place in Florida. The trip had her feeling more invigorated than she had in years. She even started to form a bond with her twins, appreciating their gaiety and amazement at the great American landscape. When they reached Tallapoosa, Georgia, though, they were met with what was perhaps the worst storm of the summer. She was in a hurry to get through it. Riding on the high of the trip, she knew she could barrel through this torrent and be in Atlanta by nightfall. The locals warned her that she should stay in a hotel and wait for the storm to pass. The rivers are too unpredictable in conditions like this. Patty, however, was feeling like nothing could slow her down. She decided to plow through it, still under the numbing effects of alcohol and medicine. Patty took the highway out of town, but she had to get off where the roads were being repaired. So she took Old Ridgeway Road, a poorly maintained, barely paved road with no streetlights and no signage. The road was already flooding when she first turned onto it. Too stubborn to turn around, too eager to reach Atlanta, the mother kept on driving. She followed the path as best she could, until she found herself in the middle of a deep canopy of oak trees. She was completely lost, unsure whether she was still on the road or had driven blindly into the woods. The flooding had made it impossible for the car to move safely. She decided to wait out the storm, 
praying that it would pass quickly, and she could find her way back to the highway. Her children started to cry. She turned and shushed them. But the storm didn't pass. It only got stronger. Water kept pouring down outside, so thick and loud that at times she felt in the middle of a waterfall. The twins were restless, scared and crying in the implacable downpour and thunder. Her energy started to wane. She was losing her assurance, losing the confidence she had in this trip in the first place. She quickly reached under the seat to take a pull of her vodka. The car started to leak. Water was pouring in from the overflowing road. She looked out the window. The storm was much stronger than she ever expected. The water seemed to be rising by the second. She tried to start the car, but the engine had died. She wasn't going anywhere. She and her children were trapped. She got out of her car. She needed to find help or her children would drown. A motherly determination swept over her. As though every moment of neglect of the last five years now pushed her forward. Except, she knew the twins could not survive the torrential waters. Instead, she placed them on the roof of her car and told them to stay put. She would be back shortly. Then, she heard them. Faint screams in the distance, as if other people were also trapped in the storm. Someone was nearby. The water was up to her knees. She started walking against the current. Or was it with the current? She felt some unexplainable force guiding her through the water. She couldn't see where she was going. She didn't care where she was going. Something told her to keep going, to keep walking. She would find help soon. The screams in the distance somehow encouraged her. They were calling for her to join them in their desperation and pain. Her children cried and screamed as she made her way down into the road. They cried for her to return, but she kept walking away, not looking back. She didn't want to look back. Forward, forward, there would be help. So she kept walking until the rain and the wind drowned out their cries. She walked and walked for what felt like hours, but appeared to have gotten nowhere. In the distance, she could see an old bridge and a figure standing on its edge. A man that appeared to be wearing a blue windbreaker, waiting for someone. Maybe he was waiting for her. In that moment, she felt freer than she had felt in years, like she finally was able to let go. She was ready to answer that call. Somewhere on the road toward the bridge in the distance, Patty fell down. Her limbs gave out from exhaustion. She lost consciousness from the inhuman effort she had spent getting this far. When she woke up, several hours later, she was on a higher ground, away from the river. She could not understand how she got there, or why she didn't drown. The storm had passed. It was still cold and the wind was gushing, but the water was gone. Her car was gone. 
and so were her children. Patty looked everywhere. No trace was found of her kids or her car. She was now nothing but a mother without her children. She screamed for them for hours, days, months. The little sanity that remained in Patty slowly vanished as she returned to Devil's Kitchen day after day. There were days when she swore she could hear her children screaming back at her, asking her for help. Sometimes she also heard the other two voices that pulled her into the water. Sometimes she even saw the blue windbreaker in the distance, waiting for her. But she could never find them. One day, she stopped showing up. Some people say she gave up and jumped into traffic in the nearby highway. Others say her parents came to get her from Florida and put her in a mental institution. There's people who even claim she never left Devil's Kitchen, and she still hides by the river, waiting for the day her children would be returned. Devil's Kitchen has disappeared from any official listings in Georgia's records in an effort to keep people away. The dirt path has been covered, and any signage or information on nearby communities have been completely scraped. Only a few people in Tallapoosa know how to get there. Even so, the deal the devil made with Dave requires a soul every 10 years. And Dave knows that no matter what, the devil will collect. So, every once in a while, a tourist will wander off while on a hike, or a curious group of kids will jump over the fenced-off entrance, or a lost driver will make a wrong turn on Old Ridgeway Road, and they will hear faint screams echoing in the distance, calling for them. They all feel compelled to respond. Thanks for listening to Haunted Places. Don't forget to subscribe to Haunted Places on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Thursday. We'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Ron Shapiro. With production assistance by Joel Stein and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Haunted Places is written by Jorge Molina. I'm Greg Polson.